Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers, and we promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hey! Hello! Good, the celebrity himself! YouTube award and uh, well, half a million YouTube uh, followers. Gosh, no. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. I know that you had such a long day and I feel so bad. No, I'm to be here. Super excited. Me. Seriously. Highlight of my week. Yay. Yeah, so September started and I can't believe that winter is coming up so soon. September is a month of many awareness weeks and months that's within your specialty it's blood cancer awareness month it's childhood cancer awareness month it's breast and prostate cancer awareness month and your field is all within oncology and hematology so it's such oh, an honor for you to you. be here with me tonight first this year yeah so everybody. i'm a i'm in asia I'm a, um, I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist blood and cancer doctor really passionate about education on the subject of cancer because it's really terrifying and scary and there's a whole bunch of you know kind of inertial stuff that people kind of you know reflex you know think about when they hear the word cancer and the truth of the matter is it is really just so different and continuing to be so different and i think that's where the education and you know education is empowerment is cheesy but it's true like kind of when you know what you're in for what to expect um, i think you know courage in people and like, especially when they're faced with anything, that they're able to see what it is, like, it's extraordinary. Like, that's what I see in my practice and, and gets me and my wife both. She's also an oncologist to work every day because it's, it's extraordinary. People are extraordinary. And uh, to be that way, it takes education, which is why I love what you're doing. And I'm excited to be here. And it was a no brainer when you asked me to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. So, yeah, I started IG live series that's now turned to a podcast series, you know, like tear down those false and erroneous barriers that actually cost people's lives especially if they're just the internet right that's what i want to tackle today is given that it's a lot of different types of cancer awareness months and i just wanted to know, like hematology what is the main premise of the field well i'd like to talk about cancer. if i may off script two things that you mentioned number one i think you said you started with covid and kind of that error that time and the cool thing is is a cool fact that i gotta say on the side is that this mRNA vaccine, you say what you will about it, say what you you know believe about it, but at the end of the day, it's something that was studied in cancer far before. It was actually pulled away from the oncology field, which is the study of cancer, because theoretically, almost every cancer is curable if you catch it early enough, right? But it takes something like 600,000 cells to see it on an average CT scan, right? 600,000 little replicated little cell guys in one place and you see it on CT. If you could catch it when it was one, when it was patient zero, but of cancer, then you're golden. How would you possibly know that is the case? What if you were able to synthesize something 
that is found a property in that cancer. Like say it's like a, you know an arm with a Louisiana tattoo and a bracelet like this. And then you had an mRNA like coding that said, hey, if you see that arm with the Louisiana tattoo and bracelet, go attack it and kill it. That's where mRNA vaccines are. They're trying to beat cancers and catch them super early so that basically your immune system is primed and ready because we know this arm is expressed on a certain kind of cancer. And if you're ready, pop that guy or girl right when you know it's it's one or two cells and so that was really cool about the about the covid part about like the misinformation and lives being lost i've been seeing so many any doctor that says oh herbals and supplements and natural stuff like that's hosh posh or whatever i think you should take a second look at that doctor because it's not right to be dismissive right there's all of our chemos are actually like a lot of the main backbones are from natural stuff right the yew tree and all this stuff so nobody should just be dismissive of it but at the same time i've seen families you know, or patients that may drop by once or don't. And I hear stories that spent hundreds of thousands on like oils and herbals and stuff under false promises, left their, you know, families burdened with a lot of like loans and costs and, and bills and like had a very debilitating bad death. Is there not, is there a place for them? Yes. And we're studying those things, but it's kind of like, I think neither extreme is healthy, but it's healthy to know both extremes. So it's like, don't let anyone do you dismissive of either, but you know, everything in life is balanced. It's a very Indian concept, but to answer your question, and forgive me for, for going extremely tangential. <laughs> yeah, so blood hematology is a study of blood, right? And so that, you know, is benign. So if you hear the term benign, it just means like chill, not cancer. Benign is literally the opposite. It's the antithesis of cancer. It's like, it ain't cancer. So benign stuff is like von Willebrand disease and all the stuff I get on, the MTHFR gene and blood clots and, and ITP with the vaccines and the platelets getting low. All that is your blood stuff. White blood cells, red blood cells, platelets. That's hematology. And then that's benign heme. And then there's malignant heme, which is leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma in this month, malignant heme. And then the oncology part is just like a study of like, not study in a PhD academic lab sense, but if you're a clinician and you're practicing oncology, so somebody has a cancer diagnosis, they go to an oncologist and you know about all the different like receptors and all these different features and what's the data and what's targeted therapy, what's immune therapy, blah, blah, blah. That's what an oncologist does. Interesting fact, I'm going tangential again. I'm sure you're just be very frustrated with me afterwards, like you're never coming back. But the reason that we, that we kind of have to have both because they're like, I'm mean, using it the same thing. No, von Willebrand factor and clotting and bleeding and all this weird stuff is not anything to do with pancreatic cancer. But in World War II, there was a ship that had mustard gas. It was in the southern, you know, like side of Italy in the sea. And unfortunately, very unfortunately, it exploded. Mustard gas went into the circulation for the small village that was off the coast in Italy. And what they found was, unfortunately, like all these village people in like the mid 1900s died. And when they did a postmortem, they saw that their white counts were nil. They died of like infection because they had no white count, no immune system. And then they found out it was a mustard gas that they took in. So they're like, hold up. If it kills, if it like basically wipes out your bone marrow, they didn't have, they weren't making blood, platelets, nothing. Is it conceivable that mustard gas can actually help with blood cancers? And so what they did was, like, what do we do with this information? I don't know, send it to the nerdy blood guys because they, like, do blood stuff anyway. And so the first thing that they treated, hematologists, was with mustard gas, which is the first one of the chemos that we still use today for blood cancers, like September Awareness Month. It was very effective in that. And that's where it started. And, and then basically hematologists kind of, quote, unquote, stuck with it with solid tumors, which is way different than blood cancers. And especially blood cancers are, you know, pretty common or one of the more common cancers in kids and pediatrics under 18 as opposed to adults. But that's how basically mustard gas and chemo came in, into effect, as well as some people that went away with lymphomas and came back from war and their lymphomas were gone. And they were like, whoa, 
but maybe it has a you know a place in the immune system or the white blood cell system, which makes sense at that time because a benign hematologist knows about the white blood cells and lymphoma and lymphocytes and all that stuff, and then also you know a way to treat it with mustard gas. Yeah, and I wanted to touch upon that practicing <laughs> oncology yeah. that you were talking about, right? Yeah, as a hematologist and oncologist, like on a given day, can you expect? like the top three that you're going to see white people are coming to see you in your office or in the hospital, like, like the bread and butter of the your top three like reasons or like, or like even like the risk factors, the top three cancers, I guess the top, three, now, cancers the top three cancers for that question is like, it's just the most common ones everyone knows about. It's breast cancer. Actually, I, I see less of breast. Like my wife is passionate about breast cancer. So she's one of those, but it's going to be lung cancer. Obviously it's going to be the cancers that are in both sexes, right? If you're just looking at straight numbers, everyone's got a colon. Like, I sometimes get that question, can a male or female get colon? We all got colons, that's how you poop. And then we all have lungs. Lung cancer, colon cancer is very common. And then we can maybe get to it. Why is breast cancer and prostate up there when it's, you know, sex-specific? Um, that is because, well, I'm going to quiz you. You had this in your thing. You're going to be, like, I feel like I've already lost it with you. So, like, like this guy, just, I'm never having him again. And now he's just going to turn around a question on me. What do you think the number one risk factor for cancer is if there's one thing you could isolate that said this population is most likely to get cancer who do you think it is am i a med student now is it's this more what's happening it be crystal, like, show? idea right cancer is a problem over time usually it's when it's when you have replication errors that get carried on they don't they don't get detected by your immune system and these errors eventually you get a ninth tenth eleventh error and then it evades the immune system and goes unregulated. Would there be just one answer, though? Wouldn't it be a multivectorial sure. sure, aspect that, that, to that, this? That, it's a trick question, so I'm just going to tell you. It's age. There's nothing more mm. like high risk than age. That's why the cancers in adulthood are so much greater than it is in pediatrics. Now, pediatrics is, is, is mostly like very bad luck. Like, that's why people like it's not bad luck, it's diet and whatever. Diet definitely plays a role. A bunch of things play a role. Genetics play a role. Genetics play a role only in experts say maybe up to 15%. We used to say 5%. But 85% of all cancers in America are caused by what's happened in your lifetime. It wasn't just like, hey, here's a mutation that's going to, you know, really kind of make you closer to being, you know, in a very bad place or unfortunate position with cancer. Only maybe 10 to 15% are becoming mutation. 80% is going to happen in your lifetime, meaning all your cells are good and golden, and then all of a sudden, over time, they get bad. I said over time three times now. Over time. Because it's it's your immune systems. We all should just pause for a second and do this and say, thank you, immune system. We've all beat cancer. If you're, if you're old enough to, to be able to read the digits, your immune system has spared you from having cancer a bunch of times. Because it said, this, this cell looks sketchy. The scale doesn't look right. It doesn't listen to me. It doesn't stop when it's supposed to stop. Destroy it. We're doing this all the time. What happens is, eventually, when you're replicating billions of times every single day, all the time, with all your cells, over decades, then are the things basically allows you to escape the immune system. It says, whoa, I got an error, but the immune system doesn't know any better. And then you get a couple more errors, and you're unregulated. And that's what cancer means. All cancer means is it is unregulated cell growth. And I heard this thing. I thought it was so dumb when I was younger. It's like, in five years, your hand is a different hand. I'm like, what do you, what the, what do you mean it's a different hand? It's my hand. It's, it's my hand. That's all it is. What I mean is all the cells in five years, and I haven't Googled this, so don't fact check me, even though you could on Google. But in five years, today, you know, supposedly every single cell is, is not wasn't present five years ago. 
that's because things are crazily regulated. They know when the skin needs to stop being skin and go to arteries and all this stuff. It's it's wild. But eventually something gets unregulated and says, I'm supposed to die, but I'm not going to. Right? And leukemia is white blood cells. And white blood cells are like, dude, I don't care. I'm just going to spit out a bunch of these immature things and just go crazy and I'm not going to listen to you. And with pancreatic or anything, everything else. That's why all these commercials that they're making billions of dollars are like immune therapy. That's a very smart concept. It's crazy it took so long. Reconstitute, basically re-enable your immune system to do what it's been doing this whole time, which is kill the cells that are erroneous. Make them see them. Because one of the mechanisms is to put a stop sign to your immune system. PD-1, PDL one That's a lot of the checkpoint inhibitors. You block that sign and it's like if somebody walked by at your party and you're, you're obsessive with cleaning and somebody walks by, by briskly under the couch and there's this huge dust ball and it's like, bro, do you not dust? I mean, are you just like a degenerate? Like, how did this thing get this big? And you're like, I couldn't see it, right? It was under the couch. But with immune therapy, when you knock off that stop sign, all of a sudden it sees the dust sign and all the, and of course, you're going to sweep it up. And so the immune cells just, just wipe it away. And that's why melanoma. It's insanely effective treated with immune therapy because it, it escapes it, but we know that it's a very immune-sensitive tumor, which is why they used to scratch it like 50, 100 years ago because they would see little shrinkage in skin in skin tumors because we know that skin tumors like immune systems. So you got to just annoy it and rattle it up. I'm sorry, you have a lot of stuff on the tip of your tongue. But I'm very passionate about this and I apologize. I can tell and I love it. Like Dr. Joyce Park said, yeah. cells gone wild. And basically, that's what's going on, right? As someone with acne and blemish-prone skin, facial scarring and hyperpigmentation have always been my issues since high school. Acne has robbed me of my self-confidence throughout my schooling years, and having its visible reminders on my face to this day continues to do so. But I have found silver linings of hope having used RescueMD's DNA Repair Complex Serum. Plastic surgeon developed, RescueMD seeks to harness the powers of science and two decades of patient experience in providing a multi-benefit skin renewal serum that provides real results and improves the appearance of visible skin damage. Beyond my personal skin concerns, the serum also seeks to adjust the breadth of damage from varying external stressors, including hypertrophic and surgery scars, burns and chemical burns, cuts, scrapes, and bug bites. All of these are targeted by supporting the skin's natural healing process through its infusion with RescueMD's patented LabCall, a proprietary anti-inflammatory skincare technology that targets skin damage at the DNA level. The serum also contains a hand-selected blend of other ingredients such as peptides to help strengthen the skin, botanicals like rosehip to soothe, and moisturizing agents such as dimethicone and allantoin that helps to speed up skin recovery. The DNA Repair Complex Serum has been my daily friend, and every day, I feel like I can take back what my scars have stolen from me. Definitely, each skin is different and results are not guaranteed, but I hope that you can find your silver lining too. In partnership with RescueMD, you can get 15% off your order on rescuemd.com with the code FOF15. The serum is also now available on bloomingdales.com. Discover what healthy skin healing means with RescueMD. Growing up with my mom, who has been a nurse for the past 30 years, I would always take an adventure in her bookshelf filled with nursing and medical textbooks, encyclopedias, and various human anatomy posters. I still remember perusing through an encyclopedia as a six-year-old, trying to look for pictures of eyes and muscles, attempting to pronounce their lengthy names since I could not really understand the explanations about the different body parts. Despite the myriad of children's books with topics ranging from magical universities to talking animals and the different types of rocks, there weren't really any books in the workings of the human body when I was a child. For children, written by physicians Dr. Betty and Dr. Brandon, 
the Medical School for Kids book series now provides a charming, easy-to-understand introduction to the wonders of the medical field. These books feature beautiful illustrations and simple explanations, teaching children and adults alike about the anatomy, physiology, and diseases of the body. From distinguishing a normal mole from melanoma, to discovering the importance of eating healthy food for heart health, to knowing the vital signs that are monitored in the operating room, people of all ages can truly learn something new through these books, as they are designed to teach real medical concepts to readers of all ages in ways that anyone can understand. Take an educational adventure into the intricacies of every organ system of the human body. Paperback copies of the books are available for purchase on Amazon.com and eligible for two-day Prime delivery. Kindle versions of the books are also available on Amazon and free with Kindle Unlimited. You can also visit the website md4kids.org for more information. Get ready for an adventure on the medical school bus! Especially with cancer, I feel like it's so complex. Not just because, you know, you can have cancer from different organs and every organ and we hear things like tumors and all of these inhibitors and all of these checkpoints and stuff like that. And for the general public, for the lay person, as we have said, it's basically cells gone wild. I think what's common to general people knowledge is the stages of cancer, right? And as the expert in this, can you lay yeah. out those stages and you for it, you know, the general public? Gone wild. And that's why in the process of writing a book, and it says it's time to cancel the term a cure for cancer and has a strike through it. would be like, who would say this? Why would he say, why would he stop the cure for cancer? Because the term is maybe conceivably find the cures for all cancers. Every single cancer, even a lung cancer, even a non-small cell lung cancer, even a non-small cell lung cancer that's EGFR positive, they all behave differently. Because what happens is, what we've learned is it's not so much about the, it is somewhat of a histopath. When they look at the pathology of histopath, that is what's on the <laughs> slide of the tissue. It's like a very rudimentary blue collar way of looking at something. Now we're like, okay, yeah, that's great. What are the on switches that are stuck that don't turn off? What are the things that basically make it recruit a bunch of blood vessels? What are those specific proteins, protonomics and neogenomics? What are the things that basically allow it to be so rogue and just monopolize the system. That's targeted therapy and presented therapy. And they'll have different characteristics, right? And so that's what we're going to when you hear possession medicine, targeted medicine, targeted therapies. Chemotherapy is a poison and an effective one because it quickly reduces the passage replicating cells, but it hurts your faster cells in the process. Nerve stuff, hair stuff, GI stuff. These things actually attack like on things that are driving the mutation or stopping it. And that's what the targeted therapy is. But Man, you you were just literally you'd be like you're never coming back because I I just don't answer your question for like ten minutes. But to answer your question, <laughs> stages at first are very binary, unfortunately. Okay, with some exceptions which we can get into if you want to. But stage one to three is technically curable. Stage four is metastatic, and metastatic means wherever the primary organ was, it has left. Now it's not an it, so shame on me. Remember, cancer is a bunch of like replicated clones of cells, clones of cells, clones of cells, one centimeter, two centimeter, three centimeter. Eventually, every time this thing is replicating, it may end up getting a thing that says, ooh, I didn't know you could put your thumb up and hitchhike a ride. So all of a sudden it goes to like the limb cells. Some cancers don't get that. That's why they get huge, but your lymph nodes are negative and they don't spread. Others don't have to get very big at all, but it starts hitchhiking all the time. It just depends on what's evolving this whole time. And so once it hitches a ride to the lymph nodes, Everything is limp, right? You have blood vessels, poor little lymph vessels. They're never talked about. 
But lymph vessels is a highway just like the blood vessels. They all run together. It's like those metropolitan maps in New York when I go as a southern guy. I'm just like, I don't know how to get around or get anywhere. So, you know, y'all judge us. It's fine. But they, you know, they're different colors. And this is the subway of this, is that lymphs are just like blood. So some things like to go in the blood system, but sometimes things like to go in the lymph system. Now, if that lymph system is in the same area, forgive my ignorance, Manhattan, East Village, I don't know, Devil's that place where every hell's kitchen whatever that is those places are regional so that can still be a stage two or stage three because it's like if i could just wipe out that stuff if i could just take out that you know lump back to me with a breast cancer and some lymph nodes if the lymph nodes are there it's usually put you in a two or three this is very loose terms but that's because we know the reason for two or three is the chance of recurrence so we know that it's like it kind of gone about its business and we know again you can't see it on imaging for 500 600 cells all we know is why it's stage two or three or higher risk is because we look at hundreds of thousands of people and see what percentage of people come back. Okay, what were the features? When it's over this size, these people just have a higher recurrence. When it's like in this lymph nodes, these people have a higher recurrence. So that's why we've staged them over time to say three is pretty high risk. Stage three lung, unfortunately, is still 40% chance of recurrence. Like, you know, and stage three breast. And so that's what staging is. Curative is stage one to three. Generally, stage one is usually adequately treated, which is taking it out. I told you it's a clone of cells. I told you they may get to 500,000 a million. But if you can cut that whole clone out that's doing something while everyone else is behaving, and you cut it out and you take out a bunch of behaving cells too in the process because you know they'll regenerate the way they're supposed to, and all your negative margins are negative, and you're stage one, usually you're just good. Usually you don't even need treatment like to reduce your risk. But when you go to stage two or three, that's when it's like, yeah, we think we, the surgeon with all respect to surgeons listening here, we'll say, we got it all. We got it all. You got it all that you could see. You got all that was on the scan. But if you got it all, then why didn't come back two years later? Those are stage two and threes, where it's like, yeah, you got it all, but we know these people recur. They had lymph nodes, they had whatever. Then you do what's called adjuvant therapy in twos and threes, definitely threes, which means, okay, we think we got it all. We know we got it all. We can't see anything, but we know these people recur. So let's go ahead and do something that we data shows that reduces the chance of it coming back. For women, a lot of times it's radiation, right? So if you had a lumpectomy, we know that when you do radiation, your chance of coming back is less, unless you do a whole mastectomy. But if you have lymph nodes here, we know radiation is better. In colorectal, I wish it was better, but in stage two or three, it helps like six, eight percent of people not have a recurrence, but it requires like three to four or six months of chemo. But that's adjuvant because we know six to eight out of a hundred people will not recur when they would have if they didn't have chemo. Then stage four. Stage four is technically incurable. Now there's exceptions to all this. If you have lung cancer and you have brain mets. You can treat radiation with radiation for your brain mess that are pretty painless, and you can still go for a soft curative intent if it was still if it would have been the stage one or two without the brain mess. Because things that happen in the brain and spinal cord are a different world, believe it or not, than your body. There's a lot, very little cross. So you might be like, oh, that's great news. It's great news unless you have brain spots, because that also means it's hard for us to get the drugs in there sometimes, because it's a, it's a sanctuary. It's considered a sanctuary your testicles and everything up your spinal cord and your brain. So that's why like, it can be kind of considered, it can be an exception to the rule if you just have one spot there or whatnot. That addresses your staging question for solid tumors. Now, for blood tumors, and especially talking about blood cancer awareness, awareness month, stage one, two, or three, and four, they still relate to the risk of recurrence, but it's not in kind of the same way as solid tumors. Like if you're stage four, non-Hodgkin's or even Hodgkin's or whatever, that you can still like very much be potentially cured in stage four in blood mm -hmm. cancers. Okay. So let me make that very clear. And then with colorectal, there's data that shows that in colon or rectal cancer, if you just have a spot in your liver or just have a spot in your lung and you're aggressive about it, cut it out or do radiation, you can still 
potentially be cured in that setting as well. So there's all kinds of idiosyncrasies. As we said, cancer is complicated, as you said, but that's generally what it means. And I just learned this, so I'm very humble. I don't know if anyone's read a book on cancer, but if you need, if you do, it's called Emperor of All Maladies. And his point I'm saying is, what is the one thing that the collectively the humankind, as much as we disagree about gender and politics and, and you know, conservatism and taxes, what is the one thing we can say that we just like is the scariest thing is cancer? Nobody on any part of the planet is like, yeah, cancer, right? So it's the emperor of all maladies. And it's so, it's so enigmatic and finds it. Pulitzer Prize winner said Arthur Mukherjee. He was on my podcast last week, talked for an hour. And he said a concept that I kind of knew, but I didn't hit it on the head. And that's that if you have a billion cells versus a million cells, and you know they replicate every day, and you know errors happen in the replication process, then the bigger the tumor is, which is why staging has to do with the tumor size and with the lymph nodes, which is where it's at, the highway to leave. That's why if it's bigger and stuff, you know that you've had errors. Everyone says pharmacy company wants to treat you until like it disappears, but it always comes back because they don't want to make it go away forever. Again, you should always take truth. I've learned that in social media. Take, understand why somebody's saying something. Don't be like, I can't believe you say that. That's a valid point. How could it disappear for two or three years and all of a sudden come back? Like that, that you're right. That is sketchy. Like that's how I see it, right? As an oncologist. But what happens is that's why stage three is a high chance of recurrence because the things that resist that primary treatment already exist. You just can't see it. So 99.9999% of the cancer you're seeing at the time of diagnosis is that original, but you have all these things that potentially won't work. So everything melts away. You're like, oh, you're great. You're great. You're great. You're not. That thing is already festering because you had billion cells already like replicating and causing errors, but it just takes months and months and months or a year to see. And so that's the concept is like, it's not necessarily a recurrence. All the semantics need to change with cool. Maybe it'd be in my book if it's ever published, but the, the semantics, I think, are, you know, make a lot of things difficult, which is it's not a necessarily recurrence. It was a persistence that went undetected and unknowledgeable about, unless it's been over five years, then it may just be a recurrence or a second primary. But yeah, I mean, when, when you were talking about the book title of Emperor of All Maladies, you said, right? And I think that's very true to, I mean, I wrote this in our questions as well. What we see in the movies, right? If you could see the movie or the scene panning out and then you hear the somber music and they're going to the doctor and you know there's a bad news coming you can like nine out of ten times it's going to be a cancer talk, right like oh i'm sorry you have cancer oh i'm sorry your cancer is spread oh i'm sorry you have x amount of months to live right it's always about cancer as an oncologist as a hematologist this is your expertise and this is your field and it's amazing how much information and education that you provide but i can't imagine also obviously the emotional toll and the physical toll it places on you know the patient and their families but i can't imagine the malady that it places on you as the physician who's you know giving this sad news or having to break the bad news right how do you deal with all of that as so the i love this question because i used to hate this question and now i appreciate it like i said because you always want to like see where it's come from it does seem like it'd be something depressing right because most of my patients i'm an adult doctor most of them are stage four most of them pass away but here's the thing and it's very simply that the reason I went into medicine, you asked this, you had this in the, in the question in the beginning. I lost my eyesight in a bad car accident in junior year of college or high school, right? Like just, I mean, just could not see on my left eye. I was, it was, I couldn't even see the light. Like it was terrible. I had bad iritis and it was so traumatized. I still have like a startup iris and all this stuff. And I was like an acute glycoma and all this stuff. And 
I had to see, you know, a doctor literally every other day for like four to six weeks and they put drops and legally hella blind. I mean, just like could not see anything but colors. And then eventually like it got better, like over, you know, several, several weeks and, and maybe a couple months. And then everyone was like, well, weren't you terrified about, about, you know, not seeing again and, and that you couldn't see and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, I wasn't. And then I started thinking like, why wasn't I? Like, am I a moron? Like, why wouldn't I be scared? And then I realized it was because my ophthalmologist, who I've like reconnected with in 15 years since I've been an ophthalmologist, which has been amazing, but he told me everything that was happening. He never said, I'm going to get it back for sure. He said, this is the concern. The pressure is like 45 or whatever it was, you know, and you have acute closed glaucoma. He was telling me the scary stuff. He never said that my eyesight would come back. He would be like, you know, your pressure is really high. And what's going to happen is you, you won't be able to see if it's that high, but that's why I'm dilating it to relieve that acute pressure so that it kind of drains out all the stuff. He was telling me all this. It's still terrifying news, but he was telling me what and why he was doing what he was doing and what the goals were. He's like, if I can see it get to 35 in a week, like high five, that means, you know, we're like getting out of the woods. And then he would tell me like, is that and the other? That, like anything, I mean, I hate to say it, but we're all mortal. We're all terminal. We all have, we don't even know what our challenges will be at the end of our life, whenever that it is. But in some crazy way, like, something that's supposed to be terminal like it it is what it is at the time you see your oncologist but what happens during that time and how your quality of life is you could go to a top institution and live 16 months but you don't know what's going on you're not sure like you're happy the scan's good but like you still don't even like you're not confident talking about your tumor and stuff and there's a lot of unknown you're just told that everything's okay keep doing treatment you won't believe how many people doesn't matter how rich like they're like they don't know what stage they are that's 16 months of fear versus if you went to, you know, somewhere else and you have 14 months or even 12 months, but every single day you're actually like empowered and feel successful and valiant. You have significantly changed the quality of that person's life and perception of that disease process, you know, in, in totally two different lives in the time that arguably matters most, which is in a terminal timeline, even if it's a year or five years, or whatever. And to me, that's the most humbling thing as an oncologist. And that's also one of the hardest things as far as like time and how long you spend and talk and stuff. But it's like the thing that really humbles you that gives me goosebumps is at the end of life when I say like, hey, this is the end in like three years, I admire you, inspired. Or when you give them really bad news, but you talk to for an hour and a half, it makes you nauseous. It makes you feel like an awful person. You're just like, these people are just so amazing. But they're like, they just keep thanking you. And it's like you gave them the worst news of their life or their family. But it's very humbling because, again, it shows the courage and strength that, like, what happens, whatever. But people appreciate knowing what they're in for. And then you have smaller victories. Like, it's like, if you tolerated the treatment, like, if you tolerated it after two weeks, that's a victory. I'm like, what are we doing to celebrate? And so it's not me. I mean, this is in general. But I'm saying it's nothing that I'm doing. But what you're seeing when people get to learn about things and understand, the fact that people come in not, like, saying a word in the corner. You can just see the anxiety to where it's almost like a panic. And they're quiet. And they're frail and they're and they're you know skinny and whatever because they've had cancer for a while and then all of a sudden they're vibrant they're high-fiving your whole team in clinic they're like what's it you know and it's like nothing's changed about their diagnosis nothing's changed at a stage four that how could i possibly be like sad or depressed when like like you get to see what like how extraordinary literally i hate the term everyday people but everyday people are and if you can do that it's the most privileged position if i can make someone a different view it's a privilege it is not it is not an it is not a a burden or it's not a, an ailment it's a privilege because like you're able to do that and be inspired every day and so you know i did study philosophy and you know an undergrad and i think it's helped and again like just realizing everyone's mortality and stuff but like it's sad only defined by what metric did someone pass away yes it's sad that everyone passes away it's sad that my grandparents are gone i didn't get to know them that well that's sad they passed away 
what is the metric that they have stage mm-hmm. four cancer in the two years and have a great quality of life and go see the world and like and high five and, and have great days and make trips more like you know liberally than they would have and they mm-hmm. and they understand what, what what things look like what their stats are that is a win that's not like that's not sad that part's not sad i'll tell you what is sad this is this hurts me when i have a patient come in that's 35 you know and has stage four incurable widely spread colon cancer rectal cancer or ovarian cancer and i get the question from them or their parents when we went to the er it's not the er's fault this is a whole healthcare system fault cost insurance everything when we went to the er the primary care the urgent care six times in the last 12 months and this has been going on for 12 months and we said it was abdominal pain or rectal pain we were told it was hemorrhoids or it was told it was you know gas or it was menstrual cycles every time if it would have been caught the first time we went, because presumably it was the ovarian cancer or rectal cancer, could this be curable? That I don't know how to wrap my head around because the answer is yes. I'm not gonna lie to them. I'm like, yeah, chances are if they would have CT, they would have seen it because it's from seconds of after 10 months. That that crushes you. And you don't want the, you know, a patient like to have an extra burden. So in COVID, that was really hard because they're like, I should have had my screening, or I should have had my whatever or my whatever, but it got delayed by a year. Could I have still been curable? Like, of course, I spin it in a certain way, this time, the other. But you're like, it's already burdensome enough to have a cancer diagnosis as terminal or even cancer if it's not terminal. And then, but also be told you're in a worse position for things that were out of your control or that you were proactive about. That's a mind talk, excuse my language. And that's been really hard for me to wrap my head around. But again, you're just always humble because it's these same people that just like, I've never been so divinely like, like, or, or, or respect or mindful of or consideration of like divine stuff. And I don't know what you want to call it, religious, whatever as a philosophy undergrad, until practice. I'm telling you, the things I've seen, the way that somebody fears death all the time, in two or three weeks, when I don't even know if the last fifth line is working or whatever, they're all set at peace, and you can't even explain it. And when somebody's in a coma, and like they're just like hanging on for two weeks, they should have passed away a day ago, their daughter comes in from Alaska, again, still in a coma, ain't nothing changed, the moment the daughter goes back, like the next morning, and they pass away, or they wait till their spouse of 50 years leaves for the first time in two weeks, and they pass away, and their brain waves aren't working. I mean, there's so many examples of things that go, it's against a science to say it was volitional. The frontal lobe's not working, there's no other waves. So it's all of that. If you're aware of all that, it really just says, again, celestial ordination, God, whatever you want to call it, in respect of your beliefs, there is a place and time for all of us in everyone's lives. And I've never been so sure of that than since practice. And it's also beautiful. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine everything that you have all seen and all of the amazing people that you have talked to. Like, you're literally with them, you know, at what's supposed to be or it is their worst moment of their lives. But to be able to guide them through that and to be, you know, that beacon of light and possibly hope as well that, okay, maybe we may not be able to extend your life or give you a cure or a treatment, but to ensure that quality of life that they can exit the world and the most comfortable and the most... Like, there's one patient I still remember. She was like, she always would say, you're saying I can still buy green bananas, right? She was like very thin. She was young. I mean, not young. She's like probably 60s. And I asked her first, I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I can buy green bananas. I'm gonna be alive enough to see them turn yellow. And I was like, yes, you can still buy green bananas, right? And she had a terrible aggressive lung cancer and small cell. Burned through, like she had like she responded for two weeks to the first line, burned through first line, burned through second line, burned through third line, burned through fourth line. And I'm like, Are your disease burdened this and that? Buy green bananas, yes. Eventually, she burned through four or five, and she was like, no more green bananas. And I was like, no more green bananas. And she passed within a week or two. And you're exactly right, like. 
most people will ex- get extended. Let me make that very clear. In this day and age, if you have a good oncologist, there's no way that you wouldn't have had some like time that's not ter- you know terribly hard with chemo and stuff, just because the therapies have gotten so good. You just need a good one that you're really comfortable with. So they will extend time. But you're right. Like it is the whole balance of the the outlook. Are someone debilitated? Or are you explaining like, hey, you're resilient? I told her, I was like, you're resilient. You've tolerated four or five lines in a row of chemo. And she was like proud of herself, right? And and she was she was an engineer. So she was just like, she understood that it is what it is. Like, even though it was against her favor, she was like, I understand that. But she was still proud for trying. She just kept saying, thank you for trying. And every time I fucking see a banana, I, you know, I think about her, especially if it's over rotten. But it's humbling. And, you know, it goes for all, I think, professional medical, nursing or anything. The hardest thing, I think, like I said, again, I just, the divine thing, it's like people come at peace. I've, I've literally seen even the people that are most scared have no one, have everyone that just, they, they have a look in their eyes and they're telling me like, be there for my family, tell them, but I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm not just saying that. I see that all the time. The hardest thing is a lot of times the unsung heroes is that spouse or that child or someone that just like has aged five years in one year. And you know them really well because they're calling on behalf of the patient and talking to the late hours and you're crying and you're crying and you're talking proud and they're happy and they're more anxious. And you know, sometimes in the patient, because the patient is, you know, it's just, again, sometimes either at peace or just like, no, sometimes maybe what, what they're not sharing. That's the hard part is when the patient passes. And again, they're at peace. They give you, I just can't explain it. But a lot of times they just have this feeling like they're like, they thank you. And, and, you know, that journey has ended. But to just shake hands and say, you know, it was nice knowing you or like you know good luck that's weird because that person is still alive and you've been seeing him every two to three weeks for two to three years and you've been seeing distress and you've been counseling and all the like patients you know you know their names their travel plans the cars they drive that's a really weird thing and i still think a lot about my spouses and i'm like is it appropriate for me to just call and check in on them you know most medical people say no but at the same time you know i just know that it was a big part of the end that stuff gets really i think challenging All throughout high school and bouts of college, I suffered from severe acne. I cried almost every day looking at the mirror. I wore hoodies during the summer to hide my cheeks. When my mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday, all I wished for was a visit to the dermatologist. I tried so many products and saw so many estheticians, physicians, and other advanced providers. But I know that my mere access to these products and providers is a privilege. Many who suffer from acne and other skin conditions live in many underserved populations where access to dermatology specialists can be difficult due to limited resources. To help bridge this divide, Benapadia, a dermatology nurse practitioner, recently launched Your Skincare Experts Derm Course, which can allow other specialties to provide comprehensive care to patients through dermatology in places where access may be limited. The course can also be used to help better train extended providers within the field of dermatology to feel confident and empowered in their knowledge. From fortifying skin anatomy to identifying skin types and concerns, breaking down acne, building skincare routines, and going over active ingredients, the course seeks to further knowledge in skincare, anti-aging, acne, and overall holistic skin health. Friends of France is partnering with Your Skincare Expert so that you can get 10% of the course with the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit yourskincareexpert.com slash FRANZ. My skin and my life were changed by the right products and the right people. Through this course, I hope that this would also be made possible for others. Anyone who knows me knows that I love boba. After a heavy dinner? No problem. I have a second stomach for boba, and sometimes even a third. 
But each cup of bubble tea is definitely a guilty pleasure, given that the average cafe-made milk tea has over 100 calories per serving, over 20 grams of high glycemic sugar, and is packed with artificial flavors. I am so glad that the guilty days are over with Twirl, the world's first canned, plant-based milk tea, with only 45 to 50 calories per serving, and containing 6 to 7 grams of sugar, and low glycemic sweeteners at that, goodbye to sugar crash, Twirl is made with pea milk, the most sustainable plant-based milk on the market, regenerating the soil where it comes from. This is thanks to the fact that fair trade and organic are the names of the game as the teas are sourced from biodiverse family farms in China, Japan, and Taiwan that practice sustainable farming techniques. No artificial flavors are ever used. Choose from three antioxidant flavors of the chocolatey Taiwan-style black milk tea, floral jasmine, and nutty hojicha. Enjoy all of these flavors, each being nitro-infused that you can feel and hear their fresh, silky, and creamy texture with each pop of the can. Let's enjoy tasty, creamy, shelf-stable, and healthy milk tea together for 10% off using the code FRANZ10. That's F-R-A-N-Z-1-0. Now available on twirlmilktea.com or Amazon. Twirl around in its goodness. I think I want to tear up and like my heart feels so heavy. Not because I'm sad, but it's like I, my heart feels so full like listening to all of this and the amazing work that you do and for sure like you build all relations even with their family members as well even if time has passed where your care for the patient probably you know already done and so thank you so much for all of your work and thank you for coming on with me today and thank you for coming on even though i know you're in the hospital <laughs> since 6 30 a.m <laughs> But I, I learned so much and I didn't just learn about, and for sure everyone watching as well, I just didn't learn about cancer, you know, and the mechanics of it and the science behind it. But I, I learned so much about well, your it's heart. Not mine. I do think, patient. you know, there's stuff like just, The Matrix and there's some other movies, but they're all kind of our backbones of, of philosophical concept. There's a uh, show on Netflix. It's called like mm. Midnight Mass or something. And this guy has a really long speech. Yeah. And you know how he says, I think we're oh. all like one heartbeat and all this stuff. Again, I was like a very rigid, like left brain objective person, like philosophy person. And in three couple of short years in cancer and terminal illness and stuff, I just, it's crazy, but I just believe that we all like have, like it is this like network of like, of, of what's either celestially willed or purpose, whatever you want to call it. I think being receptive to that. And if you feel something on the tip of your tongue to share to somebody, like on that patient, like it's like, hey, I just want you to know, like, I love you, or like, you know, I admire you, respect you, and you're like, have like whatever. Do not ignore that kind of feeling because I think it's that collective pulse of the world, humankind, of kindness, of sensitivity, that is just it just runs in all of us. But I think what we learn to do over time, which I know sounds oddly, you know, Old Testament, which is about biting the apple, maybe we're rejecting, but like, it, you know, it. We all, I, I just, and I think anyone, a lot of people in medical fields or hospice or anyone that deals with this stuff can say that there is something, a will that exists, which is a collective one. And that's why, like, I get, you know, shy a little bit when it's like, thank you for all you do. And all. like, it's an Indian culture thing. It's not me. I'm not doing, you know, it's not, I don't, I don't want to take like any kind of like credit responsibility. It's just like, do what the world wills you. I heard a thing when I was in college of a critical care NICU, like intensive care specialist for neonatals. She was poised. You could tell she was compassionate, but she had this hardened exterior, rightly so, right? And and she said, and she still remember this. She said, "I get often asked, which I do now with cancer, is like, what? Sometimes it sounds judgy. I don't think it is, but it's like, what would make you want to go into that? Where it's like a lot of like babies dying in neonatals. Like I would never want to do that. Like, 
almost a decision. She made it sound like it was a decision. And it's like, oh, you have to be cold enough to do it. And, and and I don't think that's what people mean. But sometimes it's like, oh, I could never do that. Like I care too much. Like that hurts me. When somebody says I care too much, like to, like so I couldn't be an oncologist. Like I don't think there's any lack of care in what I do. It's like I care so much that I want to be with you, like for for whatever. But what she said was what I've learned over time. Like I said, she just said it. I mean, I just think she's a rock star. But she said life isn't always about what you want to do, but sometimes it's about what you can't do. And if there's a need for something in the world that some people can't and you can, then you should. Now, that probably wasn't the exact terms. I was in college like decades ago. But that always stuck with me because I was actually very divergent between critical care. I did like six months in residency of critical care and I was thinking oncology and it came down to the last minute. But the thing that made me show was oncology, even though it's more academic and algorithm-based and I don't like memorizing things, I like understanding things. Critical care is more physiology. Now cancer is fortunately is also conceptual. But it was that the relationships, when I had to have very difficult conversations, I didn't know the dynamics of decisions that had to be made. If it was the person trying to be valiant that hasn't been present in the mom's or dad's life and is the older sibling and trying to just make, basically say, oh, we're going to make everything happen or they don't want anything versus the timid person versus what the patient. I, I, I felt in this whole universal pulse and just like seeing what the world wants for you. I felt that like my strongest assets were perceiving what the dynamics were. And in the critical care setting, even though I feel like I was really good in the physiology stuff academically, that's what I wanted to do. But I felt like there was a better place than for me to understand those dynamics. And that's where in, in cancer it's so challenging because sometimes I think people can feel themselves managing the patient based on the family's wishes. And then sometimes I have to tell family, and look at the patient, I'm like, what do you want? And I know because they won't speak up. They don't want to let their family down. That's depressing. When the patient is actually doing stuff that they that they don't want or like would rather do or not do, they know they're dying. They've told me that I know I'm dying. I just don't want to like like disappoint my family while I'm dying. That blew my mind. I had Cody Christian, the Hollywood actor, who actually has a lot of depth, and I was like very humbled up to the top. We talked about that. It's like, and he it blew his mind. It's like I never thought about what kind of external pressures I was putting on my mom. Don't give up. Don't get up. And like he's like I never thought if if she didn't make it, like would she have guilt at the end of her life to say I let my son down. So it's a very weird psychology, you know, dynamic thing that it has not nearly enough attention because we live in the Western world and people give an F about psychology and things that don't really like seem to pay dollars, which is very unfortunate. But we have a lot of people that are pioneering for it. Dr. Julie Smith is a good friend of mine in London, very popular on social media. A lot of people talking about it. But it's interesting. It's humbling. If nothing else, if you took something away from this, like, Go volunteer. I used to volunteer at nursing homes all the time, like just to kind of get an idea of these people that were, I guess, I hope they didn't feel abandoned, but just like wanted to talk. You just like hear backgrounds and histories and life stories. Yeah. And if you want to volunteer at hospice or all these organizations and groups, you will be so humble because everyone around you just feels 10,000 times stronger. And your problems that you had the audacity to gripe about, that's how I feel. I had the audacity to worry about this. Like, what? I mean, just an ungrateful. Yeah. In great, it's an asshole because you realize you're like these people have this kind of grace and beauty, and which I promise you, like came over time. That this is grace and just whatever with something that's just so much bigger. And I think we'd all be humble, and I continue to be humble every day. And that's why I do it. I said, like, how could you do it? I don't, it's not. It's not something I tolerate. It's a privilege. It's an honor. You're constantly reminded of the strength and amazingness, not just the patient, but the unsung heroes of everyone involved in that patient's life are. And it just takes you know putting the attention in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as a close to, I, I used to work at a nursing home and, you know, you see so many of this geriatric population with cancer as well, you know, no longer want to treat it. And 
you just sit down with them during breakfast or lunch and you'll be like, oh, you know, I haven't heard from my children or from my son or from my family for 10 years. And, and they're like, can you be my child at this very moment? Yes. You know, or just for this one, this, this time we're eating lunch, can you just be my child? Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, ugh, all of those stories, like, reminds me of everything that you've said and you're right it, it is it is a humbling honor to just be there for people and to just guide them along the way and to be a ray of light or hope somehow as you do and that's why it's such an honor to share it costs so little it costs so little to listen the, to care to learn now i'm gonna start choking up but it's like life is short man you know it's like not wasting time with like judgment and all this stuff. Like, yeah, and I think the pandemic has showed us right, like how short this life really is, and it's and then for sure for you as well. Besides, you know, telling those grave news of oh, you know, this bad news, like that amount of hands that you hold or the people that you hugged. Like relied so much on you and and the expertise that you brought and you know just that kind of, sometimes people just want someone to listen to them you know and to, or just someone to be there for them and uh, it's well I got me choked up it's embarrassing okay yeah. no but you nailed it I think <laughs> I think the biggest five takeaways from this whole okay from an academic you know side cancer is a lot different than what well, what our parents have told us because. It, what they're not they were lying it was that then and it's a whole different thing now sequencing targeted therapy molecular therapy trials the way we find out about these new things that are super effective you have to find out trials aren't what they used to be it's not like well let me give you this poison and see like you know how much if you live or die that was a phase one trial 30 40 years ago it's like does the subject live or die now trials like like are much more like we know this works in this tumor type and we know this works like in all these models and these humans let's just try it in this tumor type so the only way we move the needle forward and survive is longer to do trials and to like and just understand at least if nothing else again i've seen people nickel and dimed to like oils and herbals because somebody exploited their hope and i think there's nothing more demonic than taking advantage of somebody's hope without like you know because hope is the invaluable thing my my oncologist that i really looked up to in in, in uh in uh fellowship but i always said it, he's like i can tell you i have tools or don't have tools or whatever he's like the one thing that i can tell you that never tell you is that, that you can't have hope. And because the hope is, you know, invaluable. But anyway, point is, it's a different thing. Go get counsel. If you don't feel comfortable with your oncologist or sharing things, or if you haven't, you know, whatever, there's a ton of resources out there. So that's on the academic side. Cancer is different. People live years with phase four cancer, molecular targeted therapies. It's a whole world. And, and if you, you know, follow my stuff, then God forbid, if you ever have a diagnosis and you're a loved one, message me, find it on, you know, I have a whole bunch of stuff about pretty much all the tumor types. On a, on, a, on a human side, I think what we said is, number one, call your freaking parents if they want to talk to you because you gave that story and now I feel super guilty because that is like bringing me so much joy when you call me and I just love to hear from you. So now I feel terrible. So call the people that love you, especially if they're older, you know, whatever, because again, we take for every day for, for granted in life and everything like that. And so I'm going to do that after this call. Call your parents, call your loved ones, listen, be more receptive, open. I believe there's a pulse in the world. It sounds like you do too, that has like a position in a place for us. And it's never like depressing if it feels like something you're suited to do. And again, it's not necessarily always what you want to do, but if you can do it and others can't, then you should. I don't think you have to take that to an extreme. But at the same time, 
it's something to consider. It kind of opens your mind and saying like, maybe this is a need in the world. And that's why I think nursing is just phenomenal. Like, like people, I don't think appreciate the extra lengths and, and, and things that a nurse has that a lot of doctors don't have compassion, patience, like the balance of like how to say this and say that and get this done. It's just so like, like many things, it's just like, you know, take it for granted on, on everything that has that, that's involved. And that goes for everything. What was the other takeaways? So cancer's complicated. Figure it out. Call your parents. Kind of like be receptive to like the world. If anything doesn't feel right, probably not. And if you have a gut feeling to say something, to say some, something to somebody, to apologize, just do it. And what were the other takeaways? Is that about it mostly? There were so many things, so many valuable things. It's yes. all wrapped up Thomas in one. <laughs> but yeah, just everyone I think that's listening, that's here. I, you know, I'm not just saying this. It's because you care. It's because you are. You do have that door that's open for reception that you're trying to grow in some way. If you don't have it figured it out, my philosophy teacher always said it's like some of the most interesting people I know don't know what I'm doing. Don't know what they want to do at 50. Some of the most I do don't know at 80. Like it's true. Let's just always receive. If the doors are open and anyone listening to this, they're receiving. I mean, I'm proud of you. I mean, we everyone should be proud of anyone being here. You're receptive. You're present. You're listening. Listen, learn when it relates to cancer. Be receptive. Everyone here is that. I'm very honored to be here. And if any of you feel any inkling, to want to like share things or do things and you're just like they're afraid to get over that hump. I've learned if nothing else, there is there are things, there are little nuggets of like either philosophical life or or virtue or drive or whatever it is that somebody in this world would only understand and appreciate it most for it to be said the exact way in which you would say it. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter if you have a hundred followers or a thousand followers, ten thousand, but if you have this inkling, talking about gut feeling, go fucking do it excuse my language because somebody probably needs it that's probably the world telling you to put something out there that you've been sitting and holding for because somebody else needs to receive it and it's going to change their life or it's going to make them do something that's going to change other lives and i think that's the whole matrix inner working midnight mass whatever analogy i used is like listen those things that are like you know or proclivity to something are probably meaningful for everything to come back around and I'm just going to go with that. And that's what I see, at least in my humble, privileged way of, of I mean, that life of like around people that are, you know, in the end of their life. And I think everyone here, including the most awesome people, can agree to that. No, it's, it's, it's very humbling. And I'm, I just feel very humble for anyone that's tuning in. That's like, it's an Indian culture thing. Balance is important. Like, you always want to balance that stuff out about appreciation and success. And at the moment, if anyone treats you as somebody that, like, you know, Everyone should appreciate support. And I appreciate that whole thing. I only think it's from purpose. Like I'm a vessel. I'm not just saying that. To get this cancer knowledge or whatever it is, wherever it takes me, it's because of everyone here and listening. And I need to make that very clear. It is nothing that I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a aggregate of amazing people that I've met and learned from, including yourself now. You are in that file cabinet. And I'm a, just a file cabinet collective of a whole bunch of really cool, awesome people. And you are for you and so we're all file cabinets that are just putting each other's in files and that again goes to the collective pulse network thing i think it's, it's just a touch a real thing we're all aggregates of experiences and peoples that are their own aggregates yeah. and together yeah. we make each other better and everyone listening here now has like unfortunately this brown guy and, and you like in their file cabinets like we just said i'm sorry you got the burden now do something uh, we love it i really wanted to speak about cancer month because my, my father passed away because of uh, malignant lymphoma and my grandmother passed away because of leukemia. So cancer runs in my family. And so this topic has always been something that's dear to me. And I know that's a very hard topic for many people in the world. And again, like people like oh. you are... Well, let me say this one more thing. I swear it'll be, it'll be 30 seconds. 
something that I can say now that I couldn't say even like two years ago because it's, it wouldn't be true two years ago like it is today. And that's that anyone with a stage two, stage three, like I know survivorship and you're a survivor the moment from a diagnosis. You are a survivor. You survive, you're surviving despite a cancer diagnosis. And I know a lot of people are debilitated by fear and especially stage fours. What I can tell you is only today is if even like the first line therapy works 14, 18 months, right? And the second one works eight months or whatever. It's not just the benefit of what exists today, but what happens in those 18 months for your stage four cancer. Or if you're stage three and you're afraid of relapsing, it's true that the things that are coming out every month, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. HER2 targeted therapy and lung cancer, what? CAR-T therapy, like we're going to train the lymphocytes, what? There's just so many things that are Achilles heels now that even in stage four, don't say, I'm like, please, like, you know, try to say I'm not terminal, I'm definitely dying in a year and a half or two, because it means that cancer and every treatment, everything freezes. That's the only assumption where you can say what I'm told today applies for what will happen in a year and a half or two yeah. years from now. That, that, would, that would necessitate freezing all cancer research, all trials, and all developments, and all technology. That's the only way to believe that, right? Fundamentally. So just have that hope. And, and, and it's based on like objective stuff. Stuff is coming out every month. Literally, that's mind-blowing. Every, like, six months, a year, where everything is hope, and we just don't know what the world's going to look like a year from now or two years when it comes to therapies, and you're surviving, and you're kicking ass, and you, they humble people like you and I, and your parents sound phenomenal, and I'm sorry you went through that with your you know, family, but it sounds like they've left, obviously, every bit of what they needed to in you because you're changing the world. We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guest, their work, and why they do the things that they do. Please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer. Turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories. And give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris Franz. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding. Someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody. Hey.